Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. If you got your Bible, <clears throat> grab your Bible. And please turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 2. We'll come to reading it in a moment, but before we do, I want you to put your eyes up on the screen, and I just want to kind of set up the series where we are. Um, over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about what it means to be a part of a church family. And uh, specifically, what it means to be a part of Seneca Baptist Church. And um, you'll see on the screen, our, our mission statement is to help every person become a more devoted disciple of Jesus. That's our, uh, our goal as a church. That's why we exist right there. Uh, and we do that in three ways. We declare the gospel, we disciple the believer, and we deploy the church. Those three Ds are our strategy of how to accomplish that mission, which is to help every one of us. Um, become a more devoted disciple of Jesus. And so we have five membership expectations. And so when we think about these expectations, there are the five worship attendants. We want our people to come to church. We feel like that's a pretty big deal, kind of important. Um, we looked at last week in Hebrews chapter 10, how it encourages us not to forsake the gathering. And that's what we're doing right here. We're gathering. Uh, number two is Sunday school participation. And that's what we'll be talking about today. Three is generosity, four is service, and five is affirm the Baptist faith and message. And, and so as we think through those things, um, I, I always get done uh, preaching a sermon on Sunday, and I, I'm driving home, and it's the longest 13-minute drive of my week um, because I'm just replaying the whole service in my mind. And, and I always, uh, as I leave this pulpit and drive home, I always say to myself, you know what I wish I would have said? And so the good thing is um, the same guy that preached last week uh, has another opportunity to preach this week. And so here's what I wish I would have said to start last week. Okay, Why do we have those membership expectations? Because um, very easily we could become like little Pharisees um, where, where we're up and we're counting and we're checking. And, and do you remember, <clears throat> I, I remember going to a, a few churches and and they would have the little board on the wall. Do you remember the board on the wall? And it kept attendance, and it kept the offering, and it kept how many Bibles people brought in Sunday school. Do you remember all that stuff? And, um, and so we could e very easily in our hearts become Pharisees and by counting. And, and it's, it's about keeping the rules, and we just want to make sure that everybody else is keeping the rules. But I just need you to know that's not our heart. Our heart is not that. Um, there is, we're going to sing a song at the end of our service today, uh, and it says something along these lines, grace, grace, God's grace. And, and we want to be a church that even though we have membership expectations, 
Um, we, are, we are full of grace and truth like Jesus was. Um, we, we can easily list to one side or the other that rules don't matter and grace does. Um, and we can go to the other side and say only, gr- only rules matter and grace doesn't. Neither one of those are ditches that we ought to avoid. And so this morning I just want to talk about real quickly why we do it. Um, number one is because in Amos 3.3 it says this, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but it says, how can two people walk together unless they first agree to meet? How can two people walk together unless they first agree? And so for us, as we talk about church membership, we just want to be clear of of what it means to walk together. How do we walk together unless we first agree to meet? And so Amos 3.3, we also believe that these expectations are kind of biblical principles. Now, um, we'll talk about Sunday school in a minute, and you're going, biblical principle for Sunday school, where in the world is that? It's in the book of Second Opinions, chapter 4. It's right after the book of Hesitations, all right? Um, we, but we do believe they're biblical principles. We also believe that we want these to be expectations because they're good for our souls. Um, so worship attendance is good for your soul. Gathering as a small group of believers is good for your soul. Uh, generosity in, in all things is good for our souls, etc. These things are good for our souls, not just because we want to make a check mark, but because we want to help each one of us become more devoted in our discipleship. And so... Um, as we, as we come in, in just kind of come back to this, I just want to remind us that we're doing these things because we love you, we care for you, and we want the body to be as strong as possible. Last, we can't, we can't accomplish the mission of God without walking together and working together. And so this is why we're doing this, because there's a mission, um, and we have been given the Great Commission, and we want to see people all around our church come into the kingdom of God, and we do that better together than apart. Amen? And so... Here's, that's, that was not very amens, uh, so we're just going to dive in. Last week we talked about, um, out of Hebrews chapter 10, the gathering, and what the gathering is, and that the gathering, we really have three purposes when we gather. One is we draw near, we seek God together, we seek God together. Um, secondly, we hold to the sound doctrine together. It's a place where we teach and uphold the confession of our hope, and then it finishes without wavering. And we do that together because one day we're going to be the one who's wavering, and we need other people to kind of embolden our faith on our wavering days. So we do that together. And then it's a place where we are sanctified, where it says, stir up one another to love and good works or love and good deeds. And we those, all of those are corporate commands, not individual commands. It's not you do this, you do this, you do this, but it says let us. And so that's what we looked at last week with worship attendance. And today I want to talk about the birth of the church. Now, a lot of times we, I get people who say, well, I want to be traditional, and I, I do too. But I, if I'm going to be a kind of traditional, I want to be an Acts chapter 2 kind of traditional. Are you with me? Um, most of the traditions that we have are like 1900s. Um, but I want to be, if, I'm gonna, if we're going to shoot for tradition, let's shoot for Acts chapter 2. All right, you with me? So now, as we talk about the, the birth of the church, the beginning of the church, we have to just kind of understand the context. Uh, uh, Jesus resurrects from the dead, reveals himself to hundreds of people, and then uh, uh, on the last day they meet with him and say, when, when is the day coming that you're going to institute your kingdom? And Jesus says, that's not your business, but what is your business is go be my witnesses. I'm going to fill you with power and wait on the Holy Spirit. And they go and they pray and they wait. The Holy Spirit falls on them. And in, 
in incredible preaching through Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the gospel is proclaimed in all kinds of languages, and 3,000 men were added to the church in a single day. 3,000 men. Now, that does not count women. That does not count children or young ones, young people. And so we think about 3,000 people plus were added to the church in a single day. And then we come to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and we learn what they do. We learn what they do. So grab your Bible, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Are you there? Amen. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's going to be on the screen. And secondly, there's a black hardback Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Grab it. And, and that's going to be a, a good book for you to have. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible. Let that be our gift to you. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done, being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending in the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, as we read what happened immediately after thousands of people come to Jesus, what did they do? Here's what they did. They organized themselves into small groups. We might call them house churches in our day. Uh, They organized themselves into small groups. And in those small groups, they met in homes and they met one another's needs. And so the quote uh, that I've heard is that preaching is how the church grew big in the New Testament. But small groups is how the church grew strong. Preaching was how it grew big. Small groups were how the church grew Strong And in our church, we call those most often Sunday school. Sunday school. Now, a lot of people say, why don't you change the name? Sunday school sounds so much like a dinosaur. And somebody even, in fact, wrote a book called How to Resurrect the Sunday Morning Dinosaur. Uh, and and uh, talking about Sunday school. Um, but why, why change a name? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet, right? You can change the name, but it's Sunday school. We're meeting together to study God's Word and to care for one another. We call it Sunday school right here. Now, there's not a verse in the Bible that says the 11th commandment, thou shalt go to Sunday school. There's not. I can't find it. It's not in there. But in this text, what we find is a description of what happened in the early church. And potentially, I think very likely, a prescription for how we ought to be organized. So a description of what immediately took place as soon as God gave birth to His church through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. The gospel went forward, bore fruit, souls came into the kingdom, and this is what they did. And I think it's prescriptive for us. So, here's what I'm not saying. I want to be very careful. Be very careful. What I'm not saying is that if you don't come to Sunday school, you're not saved. Okay? Let me get that out there. Uh, That's not what I'm saying. Why? Because if I meant to say that if you don't come to Sunday school, you're not saved, I would be preaching a false gospel, and that gospel would be based not on the grace of God, but it would be based on your works. And that's not good news, because if I am what I do, I'm in big trouble. Amen? 
So, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and the thief on the cross never made it to Sunday school roll, right? So, it's good news that we're saved by grace alone. But here's what I am saying. If you're not willing to be a part of Sunday school or small group, a small group of people who love Jesus and want to do life together to meet each other's needs, we believe that you're missing out on something that God intended to be good for you. Good for your soul, good for your spiritual walk with the Lord, good for your sanctification, and we want you to grow into being a part of the family of God right here at Seneca Baptist through a small group of people. That's what I'm saying. Was that clear? All right, good, good. So let's look at what they did in the, in the early church, and let's look at maybe how we should imitate some of those things that they did. Look at verse 42. Verse 42 says they were devoted to four things. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So four things, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. You can circle those or underline those in your mind or in your Bibles. So the apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching at this time? I mean, we're not very far from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So what kind of things do we have? We likely at this moment don't have the Gospels as we know them. So what, are the, what is the apostles' teaching? It's the apostles' teaching that Christ was, Jesus, was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies pointing forward to the Messiah who was to come to redeem the people of Israel and the nations from their sin. That is what the apostles' teaching is, that Christ Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament promises of the Messiah. Secondly, the apostles' teaching would be the content of what Jesus taught while he was with us here on earth. And so this is what they devoted themselves to, that Christ is the fulfillment, and here's what he taught. Here's how Christ fulfilled all that the prophets spoke toward, pointed forward to, all of the shadows of the Old Testament, that Jesus is the substance of every one of those shadows, and here is what Jesus the Christ taught. That would have been the substance of it. And so I want you to note that teaching and sound doctrine are at the heart of the church and they're at the heart of small groups. Sound doctrine in our lives will produce sound living in our hands. Sound doctrine will produce sound living. And we're going to come back to that in a few weeks. The apostles' teaching. Secondly, the fellowship. The word is the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia, that might be familiar to you, um, but it can also mean the communion. Now, when I say the communion, I'm not talking about the Lord's Supper with, with bread and the cup. But what I'm speaking of is the communion of souls. The communion of souls. It's people, this kind of deep heart relationship with others through what Jesus has done that leads us to sharing with other, one another what we have. And so fellowship, this idea of the fellowship, is they're devoting themselves to the fellowship, to one another. It means being a part of a group, a part of a body of people. Fellowship means having or sharing with others certain things in common. It can indicate a partnership, and some versions will actually translate this word in other places, partnership. It involves people working together. But now, when we talk about fellowship as Baptists, what do we talk about? A 13 by 9 dish, right? A covered dish. We'll provide the chicken, you provide the dishes, right? The sides. 
That's what we talk about when we talk about fellowshipping. We talk about eating. But that's not necessarily what we see in the Scriptures. Now, did they eat? Yes, we see that. But they're devoting themselves not to eating. Shucks, because that would be an amazing thing to devote yourself to. I'm really good at it. But rather the communion of souls that their hearts and their relationships were united together, that they were linked together, that they were doing life together, that there was something happening under the surface of eating that was special. That was one in a million. That was one of a kind that you could not find anywhere else outside of the body of Christ. This fellowship was something that they devoted themselves to. And it's the natural outpouring. Listen to me, church family. When we when we surrender to Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, when He takes the throne of our heart, fellowship will naturally outpour uh, from us. Remember what just happened. Christ came, lived, died, resurrected, ascended to the Father. People believe in the Lord. Jews turn to faith in Christ. And when they do, What did they lose? Family. Friends. Relationships. Jobs. Homes. I have a brother, had a brother um, in Senegal, West Africa, that when he trusted Jesus, he lost his wife, his family, his home, and he ended up in prison. And eventually he lost his life. See, following Jesus in this moment cost them something. And now, now, being severed from family, from biology, because of devotion to Christ, now the blood of Jesus had to become stronger than the DNA of biology. That the blood of Christ ran through each one of their veins. And so those who never knew one another became brothers and sisters and family. You've lost everything. Come into my family. Isn't that what Jesus did when he died? He brought us into his family. John 1.12 says, As many as received him who called upon his name, God gave them the right to become children of God. It means we're brothers and we're sisters. And they devoted themselves to fellowship. The fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. This is the Lord's Supper. Now just understand that it was central to what they did when they gathered together. Even as small groups, central to what they did was the gospel. That they were portraying the gospel to themselves regularly. That they were reminding themselves of what Christ had done. That the Passover lamb had been sacrificed. And now, they're not drinking the blood of an old covenant, but the blood of a new covenant. And they're reminding themselves of these truths regularly when they gather and they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And lastly, the prayers. It was a sign of thanksgiving to God. And we see that later on in the text. We see that they were thankful, glad, and generous hearts. It's a sign of thanksgiving It wasn't just private prayer, but it was corporate prayer. And one theologian says that this act of corporate prayer was in and of itself a witness to the community around them. Can you just imagine? Just imagine with me. First century A.D. Christ 
resurrects, people turn to Jesus, leaving all of their past broken relationships, going through all kinds of trials and tribulation and persecution, yet still this group of people called the body of Christ gathers together to pray and give thanks to the God that they serve, even though they've lost it all. Can you imagine what kind of witnessing tool that would be in the world that we live in? We have lost the theology of suffering well. Suffering while giving thanks. And this is exactly what they were doing. They were giving thanks. It was corporate prayer and what a witnessing tool it was. But it was also dependence on God. Why? Because they had nobody else to depend on. Now how much more does it make sense when Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or put on. See? See the birds of the air? They eat, but they don't go to the grocery store. Funny how God feeds them. Aren't you more important than they are? Look at the lilies of the field. Aren't they beautiful? Solomon in all of his splendor didn't hold a candle to the lilies of the field. Aren't you more important than the lilies? The Father's going to take care of you. They were depending on the Lord. They lost all of the things that they might have depended on in their life, like Jackson was talking about. Who do you call on when? They might have lost those relationships, and now they're learning to depend on God and to one another. They had to depend on God, not just for provision, but to accomplish the mission. Can you imagine? Jesus says, I want you to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. That's a big job. How are they going to do that? They couldn't do it apart from the work of God through His Holy Spirit in them. And here's what happened. So as they devoted themselves to those four things, now listen to me, I'm, I'm talking about small groups. Small groups, because what we see is they organized themselves into small groups, and in the small groups they devoted themselves to these four things, and when they did this, here's how God blessed the church. Let's read. Let's read. Verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. Awe came upon every soul. We need to see that. This is how God blessed them. God blessed the church by bringing awe upon every soul. Now that word awe is the same word that we get phobia from. It's actually the fear of the Lord. Now that might be an interesting thing that happens when, when these people meet Jesus and they gather together. And it says, and the fear, fear came upon every soul. What's the scripture say? The fear of the Lord, finish it for me, is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this godly fear and awe and reverence of this one true living God came upon every one of them. Have you ever been in a, a holy moment? Have you ever, whether it's a prayer meeting or whether it's a worship service or whether it's on your couch or sofa, at your table where you do your quiet time, you're just in the presence of the Lord and you're in a holy moment and you're afraid to speak because you don't want to mess it up? I so want to be a part of a worship service that's like that. That I don't need to preach for God to work. but that I would just be trembling 
going, please, Lord, I know you're here and I don't want to, I don't want to mess up your presence. I don't want to grieve you or quench you. That is the fear of the Lord. They had this fear, this awe, this reverence upon every soul within the church of Christ. That is a special thing. We often look at that and go, okay, fear of the Lord. Sounds great. What's next? Make it more practical. There's nothing that can be more practical than for our hearts to be caught up and captivated in the holy character of God that we might learn to revere Him and fear Him and be in awe of Him. Anybody. Name a person in the Bible who comes in contact with the living God and his countenance isn't changed. My, how our hearts tend to be so calloused to the presence of God. That we can sit through a service where we can go through a small group of teaching, opening the bread of life, and our countenance be unchanged. That we can have our quiet time as a checkbox on our daily to-do list and not be changed. The second thing, there were signs and wonders. Look at verse 43. Awe, and, awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through all the apostles. Wonders and signs. What's going on? Well, God promises that when the apostles are faithful to preach the gospel, that God's Holy Spirit would accompany the apostles' declaration of the gospel with signs and wonders. And this is what we see happening. So the gospel's being declared to sinful men and women, and God is bearing witness to the gospel, to the truth of the gospel, to the power of the gospel through signs and wonders. That's happening among them. I have a question for you, church. Has God changed? I read a verse that in Hebrews that says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I wonder what kind of signs and wonders God might desire to do among us. See, there's a group of people that would have the theology of being a cessationist, and I'm not a cessationist. A cessationist means that the gifts, the miraculous gifts, have ceased. Have ceased. And I do not believe that the gifts of God have ceased. I believe that God desires to do those things through us if we'd be in right relationship to Him if we'd be an empty vessel of the Holy Spirit, there is no telling what God could do through us. Signs and wonders. We're too dependent on the world for God to move like that, aren't we? I'm sick, call the doctor. The Bible says you're sick, call the elders. Isn't that different? I'm sick. Here's some medicine. The Bible says, you're sick, pray, and here's some oil. That convicts the snot out of me. You want to know why? Many people, yeah, I'm sick. What if I just slathered oil all over you in that moment? That's a change of thought in me to obey the Scripture. Signs and wonders. Then it says they were generous in heart. Look at verse 44. 
all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts. Generosity came into their hearts through the Holy Spirit as they're experiencing this. Now, some would immediately push back and go, that's called socialism. Here's the difference. Socialism is when I take what you have and distribute what you have that I took to all as any might have need. Socialism is when I take by force what belongs to you and share it with others. But Christian generosity is when I give willingly what belongs to God so it may be shared with others as they would have need. Do you see the difference? See, socialism says somebody takes from me to distribute as they will. Christian generosity says I give what ultimately belongs to him because nothing I have in this life belongs to me. And I use it for the building up of the body of Christ and the glory of God among the nations. Do you see the difference? We're going to talk about generosity next week. The fourth thing that God did, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. Having favor with all the people. That word is the the word uh, charis or grace. And it says they have grace or favor with all the people. Grace means God's unmerited favor. And this is exactly what God's bringing into their life in other people's eyes. So they're living out this Christian life together, this new, what seems radical, completely different life in front of all of these people. And God is giving them favor in the eyes of all the people. Chuck Colson I read an article this week. Chuck Colson, he says, the life function of the church is to love the God who created it, to take care for others out of obedience to Christ, to heal those who hurt, to take away fear, to restore community, to belong to one another, to proclaim the good news while living it out. The church is the gospel made visible. The church is the invisible made visible. I mean, just imagine, there was a kind of community and belonging that they were a part of in this day and time. They they were sharing life together in such a way that it was attractive to the outside world. The family of God created a longing in the hearts of the lost. Remember what we talked about a few weeks ago? We talked about how it is our Um, responsibility and privilege to declare the gospel. To sow gospel seeds. Can you make a gospel seed grow in a heart? No, right? That's good news. That should take some weight off of us. We have a goal. If we sow, God will cause growth. And we talked about a few weeks ago how you can lead a horse to water, but what? Can't make him drink. But God says, this is what my community looks like. And if you will live in this way, it will be the salt in the oats of the horse that will make them thirsty for what only I can offer. The church was supposed to be the fullness of Christ in the world. And they're living it out. Isn't that incredible? And we have that privilege and 
opportunity to be in our world the fullness of Christ. How do we do that? We do that by living as the church, by loving one another and caring for one another despite differences and taking care of one another. Even though we were raised differently, we looked differently, we came from different backgrounds, all those different backgrounds had one thing in common and it's the blood of Jesus. And when they did that, God gave them favor in the world around them. G.K. Chesterton says it this way, we do not want a church that will move with the world, but a church that will move the world. We do not want a church that will move with the world, but a church that will move the world. And SBC family, we have an opportunity before us to be the kind of church that can turn the world upside down just like God did in the first century, God can do in the 21st century. But it's going to take us living radically differently. And one of the first places that we start with is small groups or Sunday school. We believe that it's so important for you. It's not, we don't want it to just be an opportunity, but we want it to be family. So let me turn this and make it practical as I close. Sunday school is where the complete gathering gets personal. Practical points. Sunday school is where the complete gathering gets personal. Last week we talked about how the gathering was the complete gathering. And Sunday school is where the gathering gets personal. I don't, we're not a big church. We're, we're above average in size, but we're not a big church. But even still, you can come into a church just like ours and you can get lost. You can hide. You can come in. You can sit through worship, you can walk out the back door, and you can be unknown by everyone. And you cannot know anyone. And that's not the way that God has made His church to be. Church is supposed to be a place where every member matters. Where, where, where every member has a part to play. That we would surround ourselves with Christ-like people because Proverbs 27 reminds us that iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And we need other people in our lives who will sharpen us. Amen? It's trouble when we don't have anybody else that will speak hard things. It's trouble when we're being a knucklehead and we don't have anybody to correct us. Knucklehead, it's a Hebrew word. But we need others when we're being knuckleheads, when we're going the wrong way, when we're thinking improperly. We need others to straighten us out and correct us in love and help us move forward. We need that so much to love us and tell us the truth. We need people who are going to come after us when we're straying to pick us up when we fall, to sit with us in our ashes and sorrow when we're hurting. Why? Because when one person is grieving, we're all grieving. When one person is rejoicing, we're all rejoicing. Why? Because we're the family of God. So it's where the complete gathering gets personal. And we believe that there is a Sunday school class here for you to plug into, to do life with. You are made for relationships, 
beyond surface level. Number two, the second practical point is that Sunday school is an incredible arm for evangelism. If you read any of the the original Sunday school stuff, did you know that Sunday school is not in the Bible? It was an invention later on, 19th century, I believe. It was an invention. Um, And Sunday school, when it was invented, when, when the authors of it came up with it, it was to be an evangelism arm of the church. And this ought to be so for us. Just like in the the early church, in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, as they lived this way, God gave them favor. And then it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As we live a different life in community with one another, loving one another, sacrificing for one another, what's God going to do? God's going to give us favor with people. And when he gives us favor with people, what's that an opportunity for? To declare the gospel of Jesus Christ for them. To invite them in to be a part of the family that I'm a part of. You don't know what you're missing out there. People say, oh no, religion is all about stealing your joy. No, religion, Jesus Christ came to bring you joy and joy unspeakable. Life and life abundantly. He didn't come to take away your tribulations, but to give you peace and love and life and joy in the midst of them. He will provide something for you that the world just can't do it. And we have an opportunity to invite people in as we're living this Sunday school kind of life, community, this koinonia that we share with one another. God's inviting people in and we have the opportunity to declare the gospel as he gives us favor. So Sunday schools, if when you have a fellowship, you're not inviting lost people to your fellowship, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. It's an amazing evangelism arm. And lastly, Sunday school is the best place for physical and spiritual needs to be met. What we see here, small groups, they gathered in homes, they took care of one another, they they sacrificed for one another. Sunday school is the best place to do that, to have your spiritual and physical needs met. And and I want to just... um, few years ago, we had a funeral here. And at the funeral, the family, um, he was in the Baraka class. Where's Papa Ham? Ham Hudson, where is he? Um, there he is back. He was in the Baraka class. And the family stood up and looked directly at the Baraka class, who were honorary pallbearers. And the family looked at the Baraka class and said, you have no idea what strength you brought to our loved one. And they meant it. They meant it. That Sunday school would be, in, in, in their case, would be such a brotherhood that does life together that throughout the Baraka class's existence, they have borne one another's burdens. And on that day, they would be the ones responsible for bearing another's casket.
when we talk about Sunday school, we don't want it to be a checklist box for you. We want it to be a family for you. Our Sunday, none of our Sunday school classes are perfect. But as we all grow to be more like Jesus, we're going to reflect Jesus more and more together. As we all press on to the Lord together, as we all have one pure and holy passion to know and follow hard after Jesus, every Sunday school class is going to, I believe, explode in growth, in love for one another, and God's going to use it to make our church strong. So, you've probably never been to a church where you heard a sermon on Sunday school. Welcome to Seneca Baptist. And we believe it's that important that we want it to be an expectation for our members. So if you're not there yet, let us walk with you into that next step. And that might be your next step. You might be out there and you say, you know what, I need, a, I need a Sunday school family. Please see me right after the service. We've got some great Sunday school classes that I'd love to plug you right in with. Maybe your next step is you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Today you have that opportunity. And, and lastly, maybe your next step is to say, you know what, Pastor, I'd like to join Seneca Baptist Church. And today's the day. So, would you stand with me? As we respond to the Lord, Miss Margaret, would you come play for us? Would you bow your head with me? Would you close your eyes with me? Is there anybody here, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, who would say, Ryan, I don't, I don't know where I would go if I were to die today. If I'd spend eternity in heaven or eternity in hell, I'm not sure. Maybe that's you. God brought you here today. God is speaking to you. And, and what God would say is you can't save you. There's no one who's let you down more than you. But if you trust Jesus, Jesus can save you from all the things that you can't save yourself from. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose from the dead for you. So trust Him. If that's you out there today, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, if that's you out there today and you'd like to trust Jesus as your own Lord and Savior, would you slide up a hand? It's me, Ryan. Father, my prayer for us is, Father, that you would tune our hearts to sing your praise. That you would make our church like the early church. That you'd change our hearts for one another, for you. Father, that we'd be so captivated by the gospel that it would take the highest of priorities in our life. And Father, today, I pray that you'd move us to be more like Jesus. Just little by little, Lord. And I pray that you continue working in our church as we've seen in the, the last days. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's sing together.